Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and I'm really excited to share with you the intense recap I did on the 2004 U.S. presidential election. The 2004 election is one I remember a lot more than the 2000 election. I was nine in 2004, perhaps because I was around left-leaning people and had memorized the lyrics to that jib-jab video everyone saw in the summer before the election. This land is your land. This land is my land. I knew I wanted Massachusetts Senator John Kerry as our 44th president and for George W. Bush to become a thing of the past. Well, that didn't really work out, did it? Jib Jab made a video for that, too. Oh, thanks to you, Ohio, and your brother Jabadiah, we get four more years to rule in Washington. When I did the two-part episode on the 2000 election with my friend George, we were quick to point out the parallels we might see in 2020. The media may call the wrong winner on election night. The Republicans will do whatever it takes to claim victory, and the result of the election may be determined by the not-so-impartial Supreme Court, all while Democrats cower. Hey, prove us wrong, Dems. But likewise, the 2020 election also bears resemblance to the 2004 election, because in both elections you have the most problematic Republican incumbent based off against a centrist Democrat with a troubled political history. The big question is, will the Democrat actually win? I'm joined by my friend Cody, who you might remember from the podcast I did on Peanuts, to discuss the public perception of George W. Bush's first term, the race for the Democratic nomination, the 2004 media landscape, why John Kerry lost to George W. Bush, and Cody and I will ponder what would have actually happened had Kerry won. So unless you're filling out your 2020 ballot, let me give you your year 2000 fix. really just out to answer why couldn't massachusetts senator john Kerry defeat george w bush when he was george w bush and what can we learn from that i think it's important to understand what the american public really thought about bush when he was elected into office because for all the criticisms and protests and people who thought he was illegitimately elected, at a certain point, life just went on. We had to accept that he really was number 43. He's this good old American, and he's going to lead the country the way it should. And I think for what we're talking about here, I really got to thank the UVA Miller Center. They neatly summarized the key events of George W. Bush's first term. So that would be from when he was inaugurated, late January 2001, to January of 2005, where we all know he would get another four years. But before that, we're just centering on this time period. As soon as Bush first took office, he abandoned the Kyoto Protocol, which was the international treaty 180 countries signed to reduce industrial emissions. This was long before we get a president like Trump who withdraws from the Paris Climate Accords. Yeah, so many things that like Bush was responsible for makes you realize that like young voters saw Trump get elected and said, I can't believe that this happened. And I think that people that saw the Bush administration basically said, I can't believe this happened again. I think that just propaganda goes such a long way in whatever caricature Bush was putting up. Well, this is a little more in that timeline. In June of 2001, Bush signed into law a trillion-dollar tax cut, and then he halts stem cell research in August of 2001, and he does that as his approval rating sinks. He started his term at about a 57% approval rating. That's pretty normal for a new incumbent president. That goes down to 51%, but... 
shortly after his approval rating shot up about 90 percent and that kind of continues a little bit for the rest of 2001 do you want to guess why that happened i believe it was 9-11 jordan that would be correct because 9-11 happens and everything the Bush administration did in response, they're really full-fledged topics I should do for future episodes because here are some highlights. Bush launches the Department of Homeland Security. Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge is appointed as being in charge. That's where we get the infamous color-coded threat warning system. Bush states in his first State of the Union following 9-11 that North Korea, Iran, and Iraq are an axis of evil. Months before that, he signs the Patriot Act into law. So, goodbye American civil liberties. Yeah, have we ever witnessed fear-mongering in recent times? I mean, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it seems to be like a common trait of these red presidents we get. And then closer to the 2004 election... We have the Iraq War. So again, more fodder for future episodes, but the truncated timeline is October of 2002, Senate approves Bush to go to war with Iraq. The Saddam Hussein-led nation, the administration alleged, had ties to al-Qaeda, who was actually behind 9-11. The reason for going to war with Iraq was because apparently they had life-threatening weapons of mass destruction they were going to use against us, and that was in violation of UN Security Council Resolution 1441. Shortly after we're approved to go to war with them, the Republicans take control of the House and Senate November of 2002. As we invade Iraq in March 2003, we thought, hey, maybe we had a chance at this thing when a few months after we actually capture Saddam Hussein. Most importantly, just as we describe Bush's first term, October of 2003, seven months after we invaded the country, David Kay, the chief U.S. weapons inspector, is forced to report that Iraq had no biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons. Aw, shucks. I think that America, we, we have like manipulative institutions and our leaders are just as much culpable in like fear-mongering, fear tactics, and almost like our own forms of terrorism. It's absurd to see. I mean, to cause irreparable harm and destruction and to kill so many people. Yeah, what kind of timing is that? To invade Iraq and then to have the chief weapons inspector just be like forced to report that there are no weapons in the area? Like that kind of timing, it just makes it look like it's all political theater. Never mind how many Americans died because they're like, hey, we're defending our country. We need to make sure Iraq doesn't use their scary weapons against us. Bush, instead of really considering what have I done, how do I sleep at night, how do we undo the damage that is going to be lasting for decades to come, at the May 2004 Radio and Television Correspondents Association dinner, he shows the audience a stage slideshow of him looking under his desk at the Oval Office for WMDs, and he makes a joke about how, nope, they weren't under here, and then there's like another slide of him looking somewhere else in the office, it's like, nope, couldn't find him over there, ha ha ha, <laughs> like, isn't that funny that's why we went to war and it's worth noting that around this time when we're forced to conclude there are no weapons that the bush administration tries to sell the public on oh we weren't going to war over saddam actually having weapons and intending to use them against us we were going to war because there might have been like a weapons program and we just wanted to make sure we washed it they tried to claim that like oh well we were also just misled by faulty intelligence nope no weapons over there 
Maybe under here. <laughs> when he makes those cracks looking under his desk, I don't know how anybody thinks of anything but relatable family man and strong leader. <laughs> Well, I guess that was the perception because people didn't really seem to mind that around this time, Bush is joking about, oh, couldn't find those WMDs, that CBS is releasing horrific photos showing U.S. soldiers torturing Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib under the direction of the Bush administration. Story for another time. At this point, from late 2002 till around the time of the election in 2004, Bush's approval rating goes from 71% to about 40%. So that's where Bush is right now. In this time frame, late 2003, early 2004, we get the fight for the Democratic nomination because an election's coming up, someone's going to oppose George W. Bush. Who's that going to be? A handful of people are running for the ticket. We know that John Kerry eventually would be nominated in the summer of 2004 at the DNC, and his only close competitors were North Carolina Senator John Edwards, who Kerry eventually picked as his proposed vice president. John Edwards, he carried the lead in two states during the caucuses and primaries, where Kerry won the rest. Other notable competitors were Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, Ohio State Representative Dennis Kucinich, and also famed activist Al Sharpton, but he dropped out kind of early. One notable person I did not mention is Kanye West. <laughs> yes, that's right. Kanye West. <laughs> this is an alternate timeline before he starts his groundbreaking career. He was there. He was going to be our... <laughs> no, who I actually met was Vermont's 79th governor, who was in office 1991 through 2003, Howard Dean. And I know as soon as I said his name you heard this sound <laughs> howard dean's scream really shook the american voting public i remember my grandmother around that time fearing dean behind the button and mad magazine plays howard dean's infamous scream which took place at a west des moines rally number three on their list of the dumbest things of 2004 and I kind of have a problem with that because they put that number three on a list that had number one, the prison torture at Abu Ghraib, but they also put in Bush's tasteless WMD joke, and they were actually very ahead of their time because this is a magazine that comes out late 2004. They also put in that list Donald Trump being rehabilitated via The Apprentice. Incidentally, that was also a podcast of mine you can listen to. My point here is just that I don't think Mad's choice ages very well because I don't think Howard Dean getting a little energetic is anywhere as bad as those things, especially as they illustrated Howard Dean in the style of that painting from Edvard Munch's. I know I'm going to mispronounce that name, but he's that artist who made the scream. Right. They right, right. had an illustration of Howard Dean <laughs> painted that way. It was a brief burst of energy, but it really consumed the airwaves before John Kerry was officially the Democratic Party's nominee. As the Center for Presidential History notes, these 23 seconds were broadcast more than 600 times on cable and network news in the days following the Iowa contest. This count did not include local news affiliates or talk shows. Comedians and late-night talk shows mocked Dean for weeks. I would kick open the door of the office, and I would chop that motherfucking desk in half! Yeah! 
I know Howard Dean might sound a bit off topic, but I think he's significant in the story about the 2004 election, which concerns John Kerry and George W. Bush for two reasons. And the first one is Howard Dean legitimized the voices of those who were not buying George W. Bush's con. He wasn't a democratic socialist, he will be the first to tell you, but he had three seemingly progressive policies in his campaign. He wanted to provide health care, provide economic opportunity, and end the war. And number two, the reason why I think he's significant, is the media's reaction to the Dean scream would foreshadow the hell Kerry would have to face once he was the sole opponent to George W. Bush. In the 2000s, where people were still getting their information, mainly from newspapers and network news, to see something that many times, I can't believe that he became like this sensation that was adversarial to like the Democratic cause, which sucks, you know? Yeah, and he really did do something for the Democratic Party. That was what I'm getting at in my first point. It's kind of hard for me to remember this because I was so young. I grew up in a mostly liberal area, but in post 9-11 America, saying a single bad word about Bush and the war on terror was considered akin to treason. Bush even said as much with, you're with us or against us. And as Howard Dean's campaign manager, Joe Trippi, pointed out, few Democrats argued with that. And when Bush sets up that false binary, you don't have a choice. And he wanted Dean to be the person who was unapologetically against Bush in his BS. It didn't really translate to good numbers in the primaries. James Rubin, a former assistant secretary of state in the Clinton administration, though, said that Howard Dean broke what I personally call the criticize Bush and you're not a patriotic American trap. So the second point about Howard Dean and his significance to 2004 Pretty much everything the media told you about Howard Dean's scream was a lie. The scream and the negative reaction from the public didn't really influence Dean's decision to exit the race in February of 2004. But the truth is he was already losing. He was behind John Kerry and John Edwards. And the reason he even held that rally in Iowa in the first place was to get back some momentum. You know, the way that we like publicize moments in a campaign, it hurts my chest a little, like thinking about how much advertising we go up against in just daily life. To think that something so trivial as this burst of energy suddenly becomes a reason not to vote for somebody or against an entire party or, or that it's a factor in what we view as presidential. It's just ridiculous. I think there's something to be said about how the public perceives a moment that's blown up over the media. And Howard Dean, by his own admission, he's like, look, I get intense because I want people to believe in themselves. <laughs> And Iowa Senator Tom Harkin had told Dean prior to when he got on stage at that rally, let her rip. The thing that you don't really understand unless you're there at the rally is that the crowd at the rally was really, really loud. And Dean had to match the crowd's voices and energy. And it's important to note that the microphone you hear him speaking out of, it isolated his voice. So if you're only seeing what he said on TV, you're only hearing his isolated audio. You don't get why he's going so nuts. <laughs> and then that burst of energy, which I saw a transcription of it. It's typed out as yarg. <laughs> but you hear him say that it looks like, Oh, crazy. But I mean, even just hearing the isolated audio, not even realizing that the man has to compete with the noise of a really large energetic crowd, it, it sounds pretty normal. And this is the exact quote in its context. If you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in Iowa, we would have given anything for that. 
Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! So Trisha Enright, Howard Dean's communication director, said the scream and the unjustified reaction happened in a snap. There's this short film that was made by 538 about this exact topic, and it shows one Iowa newspaper. They published an article that said, Iowa yell may hurt Dean, and there's four different photos of Dean getting very energetic and making that scream, I put in quotes. <laughs> and Stephanie Cutter, who was John Kerry's 2004 communications director, she said that upon seeing Dean's initial lead in 2004, the other Dems came after him and used this antic to prove that Dean was angry and didn't have the temperament to be president. And the news goes crazy for this. And that's how you get late night show hosts like Jay Leno saying cows in Iowa are having mad Dean disease. <laughs> Comic legend that man is. I just pictured um, the Joker saying, how about another joke? Howard Dean. <laughs> and then he goes, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. I just feel so like, here we are in 2020. We have to remember that in 2004, this was before gay marriage was legal federally. I think to see a man make perhaps effeminate noise in front of a large group of people, like it goes down to like, we just can't have a man that sounds like that or would ever do something like that. You know, that's a really smart point because I can only imagine how crazy the press would have got if that was Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton who did that. Jesus, yeah. Like, oh my God, they'd have a field date. Oh my God. Dean had no regrets about anything except that he didn't become president. And the effect this has on John Kerry, this whole negative spin on Howard Dean, leads into how the media treats him. Seeing what they did with Howard Dean and the Scream, I thought what well, you're going to find that the media, they completely screwed over John Kerry and that's why George W. Bush became president. Maybe not, because this is what I found. A Rowan University study from 2005, they analyzed news coverage of George W. Bush and John Kerry in the Washington Post and New York Times. I'm very skeptical and almost just outright opposed to their conclusion that because the New York Times had more front page coverage of John Kerry, unlike the Washington Post, that meant that the New York Times had a liberal bias. Because in 2003, the reason why we were justified in invading Iraq was because the New York Times, they printed the Bush administration's lies verbatim. They don't challenge anything about WMDs or Saddam, whatever they're saying about that and then that gets the public thinking hey if the new york times is saying this is true then we got to go to war but this rowan university study did find this the new york times and washington post never called bush a flip-flopper but called john Kerry that 114 times Kerry was called soft on terrorism 167 times compared to the four times bush was accused of that Bush got hit more with the phrase tax breaks for the rich. Now, I got to ask you, though, if you're a wealthy elite, do you care more that you're reading about like, hey, I got to know what are these candidates stand for? I can either vote for the flip flopper who's soft on terrorism and remembering <laughs> everything we just said about like how hawkish Americans were after 9-11 or I can vote for this Bush guy. But I got to hesitate because he's going to make tax breaks for rich people like myself. <laughs> yeah, it's a complete and total foundational principle. 
level of voting Republican. <laughs> so the New York Times favoring Kerry was also corroborated by a Louisiana State University study. And the most important issues that study and some other studies found that were important to voters were the war on terrorism, healthcare, homeland security, economy, taxes, social security, abortion, and religion. The Center for Media and Public Affairs report that John Kerry received the most favorable network news coverage than any presidential candidate since 1980. Still doesn't feel right to me. I'm scratching my head when I see the conclusion that Kerry got the most TV coverage and that CBS News and another network were the most balanced cable networks. Do you want to guess what the other network along with CBS News this study concluded was the most balanced? Could it be the national newsline for white nationalism in America? I mean, it's just called Fox News. Yep, maybe we got Fox wrong. They weren't lying to us when they said they were fair and balanced, if that's what this study is concluding. If anyone's just wondering, like, well, why are you, like, being so facetious against what is an objective fact or, like, some pretty solid information that, hey, Kerry, he gets some good news coverage. He's featured more than Bush. Everything looks pretty favorable to him. The guys at CBS News and Fox News would have you believe, too. This is what I think the problem is. It all goes to the swift boaters. So if anyone remembers that jib-jab video that came out the summer before the election, John Kerry won three purple hearts. You got that Botox, but I still won three purple hearts. He was a veteran of Vietnam. Man was a hero in some sense. It's not like the Republicans could convince the media otherwise, right? Right? Oh, yeah, right. Totally. John Kerry gave the enemy for free what I and many of my uh, comrades in, in North Vietnam in the prison camps uh, took torture to avoid saying. Here are the basic facts. John Kerry was a Navy lieutenant junior grade. He led a class of five 50-foot-long U.S. Navy vessels used during the Vietnam War known as swift boats. Kerry led the swift boats in 1969 across the Mekong Delta, where U.S. naval forces in South Vietnam attempted to block Viet Cong's supply routes. Kerry had little combat experience, but he had his work cut out for him when Viet Cong forces fired upon the swift boats. Kerry was awarded for rescuing Jim Rassman from the Bay Hap River during this attack. John Kerry's actual crew, as in the people who worked with him directly, they for the most part corroborate this account. They were curiously not interviewed in John E. O'Neill and Jerome Corsi's August 2004 book, Unfit for Command. And the people they did interview were a group of Vietnam veterans who had served on swift boats and formed a 527 organization, which is the IRS name for a tax-exempt group, to influence an election called Swift Boat veterans for truth and they released a series of ads john Kerry secretly met with enemy leaders in paris though we were still at war and americans were being held in north vietnamese prison camps then he returned and accused american troops of committing war crimes on a daily basis in a time of war can america trust a man who betrayed his country swift boat veterans for truth is responsible for the content of this advertisement Every time I see the Republicans do something, I think, I don't know if I want the truth or if I just want to win. Well, the Washington Post looked into the Swift Boaters' claims and that aforementioned book published about Kerry's war record. The quote from the Post says, There is no argument that Jim Rassman fell into the river and that John Kerry fished him out, nor is there any dispute that Kerry was hurt in the arm, although the anti-Kerry camp claims he exaggerated the nature of his injury. 
much else is hotly contested. That much else being how much enemy fire Carrie and the Swift Boaters faced. So the Swift Boat veterans accuse Carrie of being a coward, lying about his service, and hogging the limelight. Carrie wasn't a hero by their book. He fled upon any sign of danger, and he had never been fired upon in the first place. The Washington Post disagreed as they looked into this. They found Kerry's version of events to be typed up in Navy reports, though they did note that John Kerry and his campaign would not provide full access to his journals written at the time that could have provided some more information. So John O'Neill, the, uh, the co-author of the book that smeared Kerry, his defense was, well, John Kerry wrote up his own Navy reports, but the Washington Post finds, well, there are initials on these pages of these Navy reports that are not John Kerry's. Washington Post didn't really think there was much credibility to the Swift Boaters' claims. The Swift Boaters' actions affected Kerry's performance in the election, not just because the media aired their ads, but because their lies were widely discussed elsewhere. The Swift Boaters, I'd argue, pretty much succeeded in making Kerry and the Democrats weak on national security issues. The accusations that John Kerry made against the veterans who served in Vietnam was just devastating. Randomly shot at civilians. And it hurt me more than any physical wounds I had. Following his tour in Vietnam, Kerry testified about the U.S.'s war crimes in 1971. The Swift Boat Veterans for Truth were still resentful of that over 30 years later. What they were doing was drawing a parallel between how John Kerry viewed the Vietnam War and the current war on terror. So all those ads that tell you John Kerry wasn't a war hero, they are trying to capitalize on the fear Americans had of, we need a tough, going to defeat terrorism, lead us to war victory president. And they're trying to tell you that's not John Kerry. He is a traitor to the country. He didn't even like what we did in Vietnam. It's disappointing to see how slanderous commentary from those in power, it's just like, it's the first tool. I mean, when we look back during this Bush era, it, it is just painted all over it. There's no clean politician, but everything that we're seeing coming from the right side of the spectrum, it's like shameless. And I don't know, it's disappointing to see that there's such a big population of people that fall for it too. It's really hard for me to kind of wrap my head around the fact that you could run as a candidate in 2004. You could say, hey, I'm against threats to free speech that were secretly signed into law. I'm against the lawless arrests of alleged terrorists. I'm against all the inhumane torture we do to the people we imprison. And you could say all that and people would not want to vote for you. People would think, how dare you? And that's just because that's how scary 9-11 was for people. Even those who were kind of left-leaning. I also think it's pretty telling that John Kerry was made by the Swift Boaters to be an asshole for outlining the U.S.'s war crimes against Vietnam. Look, I get that the Vietnamese captors weren't exactly into human rights either, but which country is still dealing with the horrific effects of napalm on their own citizens? In case you weren't convinced that the media mishandled the Swift Boaters, which would kind of support my theory that, no, John Kerry did have a lot to contend with when it came to how the press was covering him, I'd like to read this quote from the Center for Presidential History, which says this about Kerry and the Swift Boaters. Ultimately, the group's efforts succeeded so well that the term Swift Boat has entered the Oxford and American Heritage Dictionaries, 
as those entries define it, swift boating refers to public campaigns which utilize, quote, personal attacks and, quote, exaggerated or unsubstantiated allegations. So it doesn't matter that the swift boaters' reasons for attacking John Kerry weren't found on much merit. They got all the press they needed. While the Bush campaign didn't really associate themselves with this group, they must have really enjoyed all the trouble it was causing Kerry for being accused of dishonoring the country, lying about his service. This group, with all their ads, they get enough wealthy Texas Republicans to fund them. And their efforts are so successful that John Kerry reportedly dropped any mention of his military experience by the time he was officially the Democratic nominee. Kerry's own after-action report That's which a lie. said there had been 5,000 meters That's a lie. Of Absolute lie. Uh, you guys you lie in that book endlessly, claiming that reports belong to Kerry well that don't have his Kerry. name on it, John O'Neill. I think it'd be a good time to just take a break from the actual partisan politics of the presidential contenders campaigns and just talk about how did voters make up their minds. I think 2004 is a really interesting year because 2000, new millennium, you have technology up and coming that would kind of build for the future for the current year we live in right now. 2004 is kind of where most of that is cemented. 2004 was a year where TV news, the debates, and the internet are really driving public opinion. And the internet was a presence in the 1996 election where 3% of voters are going to rely on the internet for who they're going to vote for. But 11% of people were doing that in 2000 using the internet to make their decision. And that almost doubles to 21% in 2004. 41% of voters say they got at least some of their news about the 2004 election online, and 21% of those polled relied on the internet for most of their election news, which, again, was almost double that of 2000. At that time, were you kind of like Googling things, even though you're a kid? Did you use the internet at any time to look up President Bush or Senator Kerry? Oh, I remember trying to get to like addictinggames.com from like a Yahoo search engine and like it would have news clips <laughs> yeah. up there. <laughs> and like, you know what? That is the best answer you could have given me right now. Because honestly, I'm trying to sound like, yes, I was the very studious politics scholar as a nine year old. But no, I was probably doing something closer to that yeah like news headlines would be merged with like some some like horrible search engine but i remember seeing adult stuff on the screen and not paying very much attention you know i feel like such a millennial realizing that the reason why there weren't so many people in the year 2000 using the internet for their information is because not a lot of people had broadband internet back then if they had internet at all they were doing it through dial-up and Bush raises $273 million for his campaign. Only 5% of that goes to internet research, where Kerry actually spent a third of his $249 million raised to just promote himself on the internet. And Howard Dean, this is another reason why he's significant. He too used money to promote himself on the internet. And Pew Research Center notes that this is how we got audio remixes of Howard Dean's Scream, which again, maybe is why it got more attention than it would have otherwise. And there were also a rise of bloggers and online activists. 37 million Americans, about 31%, are those who are resorting to the internet for any kind of information. I think now is where we get into the extreme details of 
George W. Bush, the incumbent president who is going to fight to stay in office for four more years. And this is the part in our timeline. This is in late 2004. John Kerry, senator of Massachusetts, officially the Democratic nominee. And now we know it's Bush v. Kerry. I'm John Kerry, and I'm reporting for duty. What will become really clear is that Bush and Kerry's neck-and-neck presidential runs is that Bush was perceived as the lovable and passionate leader who had already proven to protect his constituents in the darkest of times. And John Kerry, if I may steal Jib-Jab's line, had more waffles than a house of pancakes. Kerry had notable flip-flops, which we're going to get to in a sec. He also had a few campaign gaffes. And people, at the same time, failed to consider everything else wrong about Bush. I mean, can you believe that? Yeah, I mean, Will Ferrell would have been a better president imitating George Bush than George Bush himself. Yeah. My favorite political cartoonist, Tom Tomorrow, pointed out the stark contrast on how the press covered and how people reacted to John Kerry and George W. Bush and this cartoon he made where John Kerry and George W. Bush, they're interviewed by the late Tim Russert, who was the moderator for NBC's Meet the Press. And we're going to read that for you now. So this is the cartoon, and it says in the top left, the candidate. Senator Kerry, Tim Russert says, is light a wave or a particle? Well, Tim, quantum mechanics teaches us that light exhibits the characteristics of both a wave and a particle, so either theory can be considered valid under the specific definable circumstances. And this is the commentary. That's John Kerry for you, always trying to straddle both sides of the issue. Can't he take a firm stand on anything? Which is it, Senator Kerry? Wave or particle? So this is Russert speaking to George W. Bush, the candidate. Mr. President, can you spell the word cat? Oh, gee, you're really putting me on the spot. A lot of pressure here. Wish you'd given me this one in advance. Let's see. K-A-T? The commentary. He was really, really close. Nobody expects the president to be a championship speller. The important thing is that he says what he believes. That's real leadership. Comedy gold, but... Maybe there's a little more truth to that than people want to admit. We kind of have to emphasize what Bush really had securing his victory was his post-9-11 image. He emphasized security. He protected families. And the honest-to-God truth is there hadn't been another 9-11 since 9-11. Mark Melman, Senator John Kerry's top pollster, admitted that Bush used fear well to make voters not want to take any risks, not question the status quo, and to perceive Bush as being a sufficient leader. And Melman said, voters were not feeling a level of sufficient pain to reject the incumbent, which I think sums up pretty much everything we're saying here. He did have a lot of momentum going for him for reasons completely outside of his competence, which is, I think, something that, like, the incompetent presidents somehow are lucky enough for things like that to fall into their lap sometimes. Especially if Trump wins, like, it will be the same thing. I was kind of curious, like, did people in 2004 really expect John Kerry to win? 
I certainly remember wanting him to win and the liberal-minded adults wanting the same thing. On an international level, you get people like the Guardian's Martin Kettle, who didn't have the power of hindsight, who said that America would have to get used to the idea of a potential John Kerry presidency. And his point wasn't that Bush wasn't going to win or had no ability to, but rather that even in post-9-11 America, Bush's re-election wasn't guaranteed. But I think this is countered by a few points. So I'm citing here Barry Burden of the forum. He suggests that 9-11 actually increased voter turnout. That's turnout that favors Bush, and that women who agreed with Bush's military actions, war on terror actions, they want to get Bush back in office. And they wanted, like we just mentioned, they wanted the consistent incumbent. 49% of polled Americans told Zogby International that the country was on the wrong track. Yet 48% versus the other 47% believe that the Iraq war was worth the lives and money lost. It's kind of funny. So this is, I'm quoting an opinion writer, his name Atif Rashid. He points out that in John Kerry's campaign, the Democrats, they did not capitalize at all on the fact that, wait, we went to war over WMDs that weren't even there and that we only went to war because we bought Bush's lie that there was a link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein's led nation. The Guardian writer, Martin Kettle, what he said is John Kerry's advantage was he had a better chance of appealing to conservative voters than Bush did to liberal ones. And that's probably why Kerry kept a very reserved stance. And he didn't criticize Bush for setbacks in Iraq very aggressively. He didn't talk about Bush's poor record on civil liberties or on the environment or the deficit. The result is that kind of gave him a less focused message. And my own opinion is that Kerry wasn't aggressive at all. If you're going to act like, hey, I can be like George W. Bush, but better, like you would still want to point out all the damage Bush did to the country. Take the environment. Don't even do the war on terror. Just talk about like Bush has ensured that we have an inhabitable planet in the next few decades because of his love for oil. That's easy enough, isn't it? I'm also surprised Kerry didn't point out, hey, you know, under Bush's leadership, we're arresting people who probably had nothing to do with 9-11 and making them sit in naked dog piles and raping them while U.S. troops smile next to them. Is this who you want four more years in office? None of that. I was thinking of that one line in Fahrenheit 9-11 where he says, if you use fear, you can pretty much get anybody to do anything that you want. And I think that the Bush administration was doing that in foreign policy, and then they also did it to get him reelected, and they need to tarnish somebody's reputation. How do you fight something like that? I think that if the internet age was happening during Bush's presidency, Bush would have been almost on par in terms of controversy with Trump. I really do. I don't see how... Even with there already being an internet there to criticize him? Yeah, because the iPhone came out three years later, right? So I think that the introduction of these things being like a tap away just uh, or at a moment's notice, we could pull these things up. That instant accessibility and how it has affected us collectively and psychologically day in and day out. But I think that, yeah, Trump thrives on controversy and Bush probably would have stood to unite the people more than, than Trump. But other than that, he is a war criminal and we've talked about that before. I want to make clear, just as people hear me really go into the Republicans and call them out for being war criminals, hypocrites, for ruining the country, I am well aware that the Democrats are not like these heavenly angels. The DNC very much wanted you to think that, hey, John Kerry, he's also for Iraq. He's also going to continue neoliberal economics. The tactics in this election were just let's shame Kerry out of anything that he has that is worth voting for. 
that's not even a strategy. That's just like kids on a playground, you know? I don't, I don't understand. It works, man. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of using some 2020 hindsight to what the mindset was in 2004. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we have Bush who has led us since 9-11. That's pretending I'm a voter in 2004. And then I'm going to just read to you right now some of Kerry's flip-flops. And tell me, does this paint the picture of committed, effective leader who you could definitely trust to be in the most important job in the entire world? So, as Massachusetts Senator, John Kerry opposed the first Gulf War in 1991, but then he approved the war in Iraq in 2002. CBS News points out the contradiction. Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1991, but John Kerry was okay with us going to Iraq over nothing eventually in 2003. At the time, Iraq had done nothing to the U.S. or neighboring countries. Kerry, in September of 2003, as he's on the campaign trail, he claimed his vote for the Iraq war was not necessarily to approve a war, but to threaten force. Kerry would later admit closer to the election that there was no imminent threat to America, no WMDs, and Saddam was not connected to al-Qaeda. Then again, in August of 2004, John Kerry pissed off potential voters by saying he would vote for the war even if he knew that Saddam Hussein didn't have WMDs because he would have voted for the authority. And he said that he wanted to do things very differently than Bush did. And in trying to prove that he had a nuanced view, he said, I would have preferred if we had given diplomacy a greater opportunity. So please tell me if you're seeing something I'm not in doing that research, breaking down his quotes. Is he saying that I'm voting for the war, but even though voting for war usually means we bomb people and murder them, my vote symbolizes that we're going to go there and hope they sign this peace treaty we offered them. We're going to try that first. I think maybe one of the flaws of trying to have a centrist approach to appealing voters is that maybe you want to attract people that are in the base and the right that would say that they have traditional American values while at the same time believing that those values aren't maybe case specific and that if you're trying to be forward leaning and progressive that you have to make different kinds of decisions in the same situation sometimes. So Kerry just like it seems like yeah he shot himself in the foot by not going progressive enough and when you have these centrist ideas it just looks like you don't have anything that you really stand for. This is what really screwed him related to his flip-flopping on supporting Iraq, not supporting Iraq, is the 87 billion dollar vote. John Kerry implied in September of 2003 that voting against wartime funding bills was equivalent to abandoning the troops, indicating that he was heavily for voting for that $87 billion. A month later, John Kerry voted against that bill. Kerry considered voting for a bill that would have funded the troops, but also stopped some of Bush's tax cuts. But that version of the bill didn't pass, so he went on record saying he did not support legislation funding soldiers. And then Kerry says this quote that really kills him. And I thought Mad Magazine had actually just made it up, but no, he really said this. I actually did vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it. And then other things he flip-flops on are Israel's construction of barriers on the Green Line, the Patriot Act, the death penalty for terrorists, NAFTA, affirmative action, no child left behind. And the point is, with all this stuff, he at one time either voted for these things or expressed support. 
then he went back and said, no, I don't support these things, or I'm going to do the opposite of what I said earlier. It's even more confusing, like with the death penalty for terrorists, where I just wrote in my notes, no, yes, no. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can't ever find a politician who hasn't changed their mind on things at one point or another, and that's because the dynamic of social politics, like human beings kind of have to go with the current sometimes. There's no politician that you can't make look bad if you're really trying, I guess. But I mean, he has, he's certainly set himself up not to be perceived the way he did with how many times he's changed his mind on certain key things, it looks like. Yes, and that leads us to the three presidential debates that took place in the fall of 2004. I just have three bullet points, one bullet point for each debate, because this is pretty much all you need to know for the purposes of our discussion. So first debate, Bush defends his actions during the war on terror while Kerry criticizes Bush for wasting resources in Iraq that could have been used in Afghanistan. And I remember distinctly my mom showing me a political cartoon in the newspaper, and it had George W. Bush holding a baby with a beanie that said Iraq on it, and George W. Bush's speech bubble said, I won't let that mean John Kerry say another bad thing about you. People perceive John Kerry as having won the debate, even if the majority of people also perceived Bush as the stronger leader. So the second debate, there wasn't really a perceived winner, according to CNN's polling data, but we did get a pretty good Bushism. In response to whether the draft was going to be reinstated, Cody, I think I like your Bush voice more than mine, so why don't you read this one? I uh, hear there's rumors on the internet that we're going to have a draft. We're not going to have a draft, period. Which brings us to debate number three. John Kerry tried to evoke the image of a strong leader by saying he pledged to lead the country as FDR, JFK, and I really got a groan as I say this next name, Ronald Reagan had. Ugh. Kerry and Bush both oppose gay marriage, and this just shows, man, this is how backwards we were 16 years ago, that that was the status quo. You could have two candidates of two opposing parties both believe that it's all cool, everyone flies with it, almost everyone. But they were asked by the debate moderator, do you believe homosexuality is a choice? And having them elaborate on their stance that they did not support gay marriage. John Kerry famously drew ire, is the phrase I have in quotes, for bringing up the fact that Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter is gay. Mind you, John Kerry's exact words were, he said um, she, referring to Mary Cheney, would tell you that she's being who she was. She's who she was born as. And the Cheneys and right-wingers claim that Kerry crossed a line bringing up Mary Cheney, but gay rights activists actually responded pretty positively to Kerry's answer and pointed out that, you know, that's kind of fair game because Mary Cheney, she's open about her sexuality, and her father had also cited this in response to questions about homosexuality during the vice presidential debate. And I think what the problem was is right-leaning people, they balked at the fact that, oh, Carrie's going to make a cheap shot about the vice president's daughter. But as Carrie's wife, Teresa Hines, points out, those people were operating under the belief that gay equals bad. Good thing Republicans never attempt to smear the kids of Democrats, right? Not like we're seeing that at this very present moment, right? <laughs> I mean, that was the one thing Hillary did say about Donald Trump that she respected about him was that she respects his kids. <laughs> that was a good answer. And I mean, given what we know about his kids being in the White House, that took some stones. So... 
following the debates, we get the October surprise from Osama bin Laden. That is unbelievable. It's it's one of the more shocking things, I think, about the Bush era. I mean, obviously Trump's election being the top of most shocking political things that's ever happened. But I mean, yeah, a video of Osama surfacing the week of an election. We lived it, but I don't feel like I lived that. Like as a nine-year-old, I didn't know anything. So I can't believe that as a 25-year-old now. By this point, we kind of knew where the election was going. We already got that Bush... He's kept everyone thinking they're safe. John Kerry, no one can get a good read on him. And I kind of think about what my dad would say. He would see my brother and I watch episodes of King of the Hill and he'd say, anyone wants to know why George W. Bush got a second term? Look at these people. Like, imagine them wanting to vote for John Kerry after they see a picture of him windsurfing. And so at the time, Newsweek predicts from their poll that Bush is going to win 50% compared to John Kerry's 44%. George W. Bush is saying, we're fighting the terrorists and these people hate freedom. And that's sort of how he gets this jingoism out of the crowd. But as we were saying, Osama bin Laden releases a video just before the election. And in this video, he accepts responsibility, takes the blame for 9-11. I even looked through, just before we recorded this, a whole transcript translated from that video of what mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. said. It's like, oh, I almost agree with him. Does that mean I'm going to burn in hell for, <laughs> like, a guy who bombed two foreign embassies, was behind the bombing of the USS Cole, and one of the most frightening terrorist attacks that happened on our soil ever, mm-hmm. that I actually agree with him. But, like, look, this is it. He says that Islamic extremists, they don't hate freedom. (laughs) And he says kind of sarcastically, if we really hate freedom, how come we aren't attacking Sweden? He said his desire is to bankrupt the U.S. And he criticized Bush for misleading Americans for what happened since his first term. Bin Laden states, it never occurred to us that the commander in chief of the country would leave 50,000 citizens in the two towers to face those horrors alone because he thought listening to a child discussing her goats was more important. So I guess Osama bin Laden, while he's hiding from the entire world, happened to see Fahrenheit 9-11 and that part where George W. Bush reads my pet goat as he's just been informed the second tower was hit. His chief of staff entered the classroom and told Mr. Bush, the nation is under attack. Not knowing what to do, Mr. Bush just sat there and continued to read my pet goat with the children. I want to explain myself in case anyone thinks like, oh, I'm a terrorist for like giving (laughs) credence, taking seriously what Osama bin Laden says. I just mean that I think at the time we committed so much atrocity in the Middle East and we failed to understand that the reason why we had such a tragedy like 9-11 is because we were doing that to all those other countries. We were occupying their countries for our own nationalistic beliefs. And I guess it's not so much as I agree with what bin Laden's saying as much as I think that people really needed to be asking themselves these questions. And the irony is even though bin Laden's criticizing Bush, this video actually got people to support Bush more. Because George W. Bush says in response, let me make this very clear. Americans will not be intimidated or influenced by an enemy of our country. I'm sure Senator Kerry agrees with this. I also want to say to the American people that we're at war with these terrorists, and I am confident that we will prevail. His rhetoric is trying to intimidate and uh, you know, create fear, and he's not going to intimidate America. 
John Kerry says in response to this video, let me make it clear. And at first, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm like, wait, did I accidentally copy and paste Bush's quote to him? Mm -hmm. uh, no, this is what he actually said. Let me make it clear, crystal clear. As Americans, we are absolutely united in our determination to hunt down and destroy Osama bin Laden and the terrorists. They are barbarians, and I will stop at absolutely nothing to hunt down, capture, or kill the terrorists wherever they are, whatever it takes, period. John Kerry also criticizes Bush for not capturing Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. He says, I regret that when George W. Bush had the opportunity in Afghanistan and Tora Bora, he didn't choose to use American forces to hunt down and kill Osama bin Laden. And, you know, really looking at all of that, I really hate that. You got on one side, we got people who were like, we're going to go to war. We're going to hunt down. We're going to decimate these terrorists. And then on the other side, you have... We're going to kill and we're going to hunt down these terrorists. They're barbarians. Like, who do you choose, really? Though, again, you choose the guy who is in George W. Bush. That's my answer. <laughs> Bush calls Kerry's criticisms of him shameful. And it didn't help for Kerry that as the Osama bin Laden video drops, there's news that eight U.S. Marines were killed in Fallujah. So Kerry's forced as a result to apologize as Republicans, according to The Guardian, Thank the heavens that his misstep pushed two stories off the front pages. One, that there were no WMDs in Iraq and that the FBI was investigating Halliburton. So this is really how Bush got to cement himself. Wartime president, tough on terrorism, I'm leading your country. And even though the people in the UK, people from the Labour Party were privately praying morning, noon, and night, according to one quote, that Kerry would win, I guess they didn't pray hard enough. I think the backdrop of terrorism and the fact that he was just in the right place at the right time his whole life. I mean, he's he's the son of the president. I mean, yeah, it almost just Kerry just had to screw it up here. He, he had to like say something that the Republicans could like take him down or make him look bad for saying. But I don't know how much of what Bush had to say. He was just kind of being a puppet for the right wing agenda. It makes me nervous. Like, I don't know how much to take at face value anything that Bush might have to say or Kerry might have to say if I'm a citizen at this point in time, you know, whatever it was. Bush gets that second term. He wins the election, and this excites about 72% of his conservative supporters, according to Pew Research Center. Only 48% of moderate and liberal Republicans feel the same. 61% of those polled believe that Bush's term would be successful. And as far as the actual numbers, Bush wins 118,775 more votes out of the 5.6 million cast. Since 1992, this is the only time a Republican has ever won the election by the Electoral College and the popular vote. Bush gets over 50% of the popular vote. Kerry gets 49%, and the Electoral College result is 286 votes to Kerry's 252, though it's actually 251 because, for some reason, a stray Minnesota elector voted for John Edwards instead of John Kerry. I can't explain that. I didn't want to waste too much time looking into that. And it's a tragedy because Kerry gained more votes than Al Gore did in 2000. He gained more votes than Reagan did in 1984. He only lost by 140,000 votes in Ohio, and had he won Ohio's 20 electoral votes, he could have won the election. So that raises a pretty good question to ask in any election, especially these days. Was this a stolen election? Maybe. Bush barely won Ohio in the state's 20 electoral votes, and what do you know, the Secretary of State in Ohio is Kenneth Blackwell, a co-chair of the Bush-Cheney campaign. Franklin County Board of Elections reduced the number of voting machines in, quote, urban precincts, 
And even though this was legal, they still set back voters by purging them from the rolls. Yeah, I think we have a problem with voter disenfranchisement at this country, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yes, the perceived injustices in Ohio, they're challenged by Ohio Rep Stephanie Tubb-Jones and California Senator Barbara Boxer. They claim they weren't trying to challenge Bush's re-election. They were just trying to raise attention for election reform. But that begs the question, if that's what they were really doing, if we had election reform, Bush wouldn't have even been elected, would he? I mean, why would we reform a broken electoral system, you know? Never mind long lines, especially Kenyan college students in Ohio. Senator Boxer posed the rhetorical question, why did Franklin County only provide 2,798 machines when they said they needed 5,000? Why did they hold back 68 machines in warehouses? Why were 42 of those machines in predominantly African-American districts? Why did, in Columbus area alone, an estimated 5,000 to 10,000 voters leave polling places out of frustration without having voted? The list goes on. It's pretty awful. Ohio was not even the only state to face voter irregularities or disenfranchisement. I mean, just as in 2000, Florida, quote, felons faced mistaken identity, found themselves purged from the voter roll in 2004. There are even more issues going on across the nation. A lot of these are being brought to light right now in 2020. Doesn't seem like we really fix much in 16 years. Yeah, I'm just noticing a trend that every election we have is like this now. It's not fun. It's not fun to participate in certain ways, but I think that we have to stay passionate about the, the changes we want to see because voting, it, it, it is what the citizen has. I think in really drawing what we were describing to 2020, I'd like to kind of, for both of us, to use our imagination, using some theories I pulled from the internet, to think about what would have happened if John Kerry, in spite of everything we described, actually won the election. He booted a terrible Republican president out of office, and in some sense, people think, okay, he's going to right all the wrongs of the last four years. What would actually happen? So I saw a freelance journalist with a medium piece who theorized that had Kerry won Ohio, so this state that had all those problems, he wins the election with the electoral votes, we have to keep in mind, he'd have inherited two wars, a Republican Congress, and a strong economy. He would have lost popularity if he had succeeded in his stance of like, I'm going to decrease violence in Iraq and the Afghanistan wars. Because remember, everyone is pretty much into war. They're kind of bloodthirsty in America right now. I heavily disagree with this guy's conclusion that CIA black sites enhanced interrogation would have ended under Kerry. I mean, I think we kind of learned as much with Obama. Obama and those type of Democrats are very much into those things. John Kerry probably would have also, like Obama, failed to close Guantanamo Bay. But it's also worth noting that if the Republicans kept the House and Senate, they would have blocked his efforts. So who cares anyway? Like, Kerry could have been the most progressive president ever, and these Republicans would have undermined him every turn, just as they had to Obama. Plus, the 2008 crash would probably damage Kerry greater than it had Bush, since at least when Bush was president when it happened, he was almost out of office. Whereas John Kerry, he's in office for not very long, and that happens. What you were saying about Republicans undermining Obama, it reminds me of that clip from The Onion, where it says, like, House Republicans move literally in slow motion. <laughs> Have you seen that? No, but I, I think that sounds pretty accurate. They try to slow down like processes by moving in real life slow motion. Well, with that kind of attitude undermining John Kerry, they probably would have succeeded in getting 
John McCain as the Republican nominee in 2008, as he did in real life, but good chance he doesn't pick Sarah Palin as the running mate. And so that's probably what ends up defeating John Kerry. And I saw a Reddit user who went by the name Sarlax, who observed that going back to Kerry gets elected president, that would have meant Bush lost the election despite winning the popular vote. The Republicans, I'm pretty sure, would have abolished the Electoral College had it been Kerry who becomes president despite Bush winning popular vote. This Reddit user calls it the 28th Amendment killing the Electoral College, but we also have to keep in mind John Kerry, he would have done a much better job at emergency management when Hurricane Katrina happened, but John Kerry would have lost in 2008 because he's undermined by the GOP on domestic issues and he's blamed for the 2008 crash. I did see from some other theories that at least if John Kerry had been in office, he would have got a fifth liberal Supreme Court justice, and unless he was facing like Mitch McConnell level bullshit, he would have got a justice in the Supreme Court, so that means you have a liberal majority that probably means you don't get voting rights killed with Shelby V. Holder and Citizens United doesn't get passed that allows unlimited corporate funding and lobbying for candidate elections. If only the Republicans could somehow abolish the very thing that hands them elections. And that's probably why it's not happening. <laughs> maybe the people's voices could actually be heard. If you think about how just the way that the Bush era ended and stuff, it's so hard to call. It seems like the Democrats normally try to come in and stamp out the fire and like the Republicans just make sure it's worse before they pass the ball, you know? Yeah, and then cut off the Democrats' access to hoses. That sounds about right. Alas, we have the reality Bush was the two-term president, and Kerry's post-2004 life was as such. He started a pack called Keeping America's Promise, kind of made a fool of himself at Pasadena City College late October 2006, when he said, you know, education, if you make the most of it, you study hard, you do your homework, and you make an effort to be smart, you can do well. If you don't, you get stuck in Iraq. He had to apologize for that because, you know, remember, like, it's these poor people who don't have any future who are stuck going to the military and, well, most of them anyway. As we remember pretty well, he was Obama's Secretary of State from 2013 to 2017. He was known in that time period for his aloofness in the State Department and not reading staff memos. John Kerry, also known for famously visiting Cuba, being the first U.S. Secretary of State to do so since 1945, and for negotiating with Syria and Iran. He also signed the Paris Climate Accords in April of 2016, and as of right now, he is very confident that Biden will defeat Trump and put back together the country. Future is what we make of it, so we'll have to see if that becomes a reality. I think we just got to remember, as we go through one of the most important elections of our lifetimes, as they say, with Biden, Trump, seeing if truth will prevail, making sure we don't get a Supreme Court case that fraudulently declares Trump the winner, seeing if Biden can do what Kerry couldn't and actually become president. We just gotta really remember our history, and that's why it's important we really look through whether it was the two-part podcast I did on the 2000 election. You can see in my notes there all the sources I used, as you can for this one, where we spent time studying the 2004 election for a really good reason. So, Cody, can you please remind us a saying we should all remember? There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, Fool me once, shame on, shame on you. Fool me, 
You can't fool me again. But will we be fooled again? Vote 2020. Endorsed by me and Cody. Vote 2020. Email year2000fix at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show. We are days away from knowing the results of 2020. And as we anticipate the results, I'll be releasing a string of some fun, apolitical podcasts. So really, if you'd like to be on those, let's collaborate. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Cody for being this episode's guest. Keep on rocking in the free world. (laughs) 